Now, the words of an ancient Chinese curse are reported to have said, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> well, if that curse is on target, let's face it, we may be among the most cursed people the world has ever seen. Stop and think for just a second about the events that swirl around us all the time. I can't help but be drawn to some of the statements that Jesus made regarding the signs of the times that would lead up to His return. In the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 6 through 8, Jesus said this, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. I don't know about you, but to me, Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 through 8, is starting to sound less and less like prophecy and more and more like what you would hear at the top of the hour news break on CNN. We do live in interesting times. The big question that we've got to consider this morning, however, is what do we do about it? Well, there's different answers to that question, obviously. There are some who perhaps let fear run the show in their lives, who are making plans to move to Montana and build a concrete bunker and get enough food together to ride out the storm. Others get involved with fantasies. They, they spend their time trying to figure out the identity of the Antichrist or follow some such sensationalism. See that picture of Mikhail Gorbachev? You never notice that stain on his head. If you hold this picture just right, you can... Still others just shrug their shoulders and say, okay, well, maybe it is the end of the world as we know it. What can I do about it? Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. But would it surprise you to learn this morning that the Bible has a far more constructive, far more practical response for us who find ourselves living in times of intense crisis? This morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation. If we want to discover God's take on living in the last days, I can think of a few more appropriate books in the Bible to turn to. I'd encourage you to turn with me to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22. This morning in Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 through 21, I believe we will find a section of Scripture that we could call a last day's survival guide. We will see within these verses this morning three very important insights that God desires to give to us that can bring remarkable clarity of perspective to our lives in these confusing times that we live in. We'll see three very important insights this morning. First, we'll see the clarity of purpose that God desires to give us in these last days. What are we to share with others in times like this? Secondly, we'll see a clarity of principle in the last days. We'll see what we are to stand for in days like this. And finally, we will see a clarity of perspective. We will see what we are to be seeking in days 
like these. Let's pray this morning and ask the Lord to open our hearts, not only to understand the signs of the times, but to more importantly understand where these signs are pointing. Not to disaster, but to the greatest event in all of human history, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we come before you this morning, how thankful and how grateful we are that we have from you and from your word wisdom and insight and direction and a foundation that will not fail us, especially living in difficult times. We thank you, Lord, that the more we see these things happen, your word instructs us to look up for your redemption draws near. We pray that we would have that that focus on your Son, that desire to share the good things that your Son can do for those who call upon Him in truth. And even more importantly, Lord, we pray that you would make our lives a living example to others as to what the love and the grace and the life of Jesus Christ can do in just plain people like us. Thank you for this time this morning. May your Holy Spirit be our truth teacher now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to set the stage for you, the book of Revelation is a book that obviously has collected its share of controversy down through time. In fact, some people look at the book of Revelation as one of the most confusing books in the Bible. I think that's kind of tragic because when you take a look at Revelation, and as we have taught through Revelation at Calvary Christian Fellowship, where I pastor, I have discovered that the book of Revelation is probably one of the easiest books of the Bible to understand. It even outlines itself. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1 and verse 19, we see the entire flow of this book uh, laid out for us. Speaking there, the Lord Jesus Christ said this, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Three things that we see in the book of Revelation. First, Jesus tells John, exiled on the island of Patmos for being a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. The Romans couldn't shut him up, so they decided to lock him up. But even there, the Lord used him in a tremendous way. Even on exile on that prison island, the Apostle John, now well into his 80s at the very least, was given an incredible vision of what the Lord's plans are for the future of his people. And first, this revelation began by John seeing Jesus Christ in a revealed and glorious way. Those are the things which John had seen, Revelation chapter 1. The things which are refer to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. And I believe in those seven churches we see a blow-by-blow description of what the dominant characteristics would be among the church from the time of the apostles all the way to the time of the rapture of the church. And finally, the things which must take place after this. That is Revelation chapter 4 through 22. The events that will take place following the rapture of the church leading up to the eternal state itself. And that brings us to where we are in our time this morning. In verses 16 through 21, we see the book of Revelation wrapping up. In essence, what God gives us in this passage is His, if you don't remember anything else I've told you in this book, remember this kind of a send-off. Verse 16 begins with these words, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. 
And let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Now here I believe we see the first important point of clarification God wants to give to us in the last days. A clarification concerning our purpose as believers in Jesus Christ. Notice first we are to see what our focus is to be as believers. Or better, who our focus is to be. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. You see, the number one focus we need to have in the last days is on the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that sounds painfully obvious to you this morning, but hang in there a minute with me. Isn't it easy, especially in times like these, especially in times when interest in biblical prophecy begins to rise, to start to focus on almost anything or anyone else than Jesus? You know, when people walk away from a message on biblical prophecy, oftentimes they will walk away with these kind of ideas in their mind. Gee, I wonder who the Antichrist is going to be. Or, wow, I wonder how Russia is going to put together that coalition of nations which will one day invade Israel. Or, gee, I wonder how close we are to seeing the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. And all those things are valid subjects of prophecy. But if that's all you get from a study of prophecy, you've missed the main point. What's the main point of prophecy? Well, turn a page or two back in your Bible to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, we see how easy it is even for those who are the best among us to get distracted when confronted by the glories of God's plan for the future. No less a person than John himself was kind of carried away, being brought face to face by the angel who served as his tour guide through these events, being brought to a place of seeing the marriage supper of the Lamb, the time where you and I as believers in Christ will be presented to Jesus as his glorious bride. Well, John was completely overwhelmed. And in Revelation 19 and verse 10, we are told, And I fell at his feet, that is the feet of the angel, to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You see, here we see the ultimate point that God has to make in every prophecy. Every study of prophecy from the Word of God should bring us back to the gloriousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is it that you love about Jesus? What is it that really captures your imagination? What is it that has caused you to follow Him? Is it an incredible truth that He spoke? Is it His matchless grace that saved us when we were at our worst? Is it His amazing power and the miracles that He presented, including His resurrection from the dead? Why do you follow Jesus Christ? Now, while you're thinking about that, let me ask you another question. When was the last time you talked about that to someone else? Just talked about Jesus. Isn't it funny how we can be around church and around Christian people And talk about everything under the sun, but the sun himself. When was the last time you sat down with another believer and said, man, let's just talk about Jesus. Let's just talk about him. I guarantee you, try that and see if your heart, if your soul, if your spirit isn't wonderfully refreshed. Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Notice how beautifully described our Lord is in this passage. He describes himself as the root and the offspring of David. 
Now, to the Jewish mind, when King David was mentioned, they not only thought to the past, that is, the golden era of the kingdom of Israel, the the time where they were really hitting on all cylinders spiritually, but their minds would also leap forward to the future, for God made promises to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and have a kingdom that would never end. Oh, when you mention the name David, the hope of Israel would be what would come to their minds. Notice how Jesus describes his role in that hope. He says he is the root of David. Literally, Jesus was David's creator, his maker, the one who caused him to live in the first place. But notice as well, he is also the offspring of David. There we see the mystery of the incarnation. Remember what John chapter 1 tells us? And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, Jesus was the offspring and the fulfillment of every good and perfect promise that God ever made to King David. If you want to understand the Old Testament, look for Jesus there. The Old Testament is Jesus in promise. The New Testament is Jesus in practice, in reality. Notice as well, Jesus refers to himself as the bright and morning star. I don't know how many of you out there, maybe a show of hands, how many of you have ever had the, uh, the fun and enjoyment of working the graveyard shift? Yeah, you ever done that in your life? I certainly have. Back in the early 80s, I was going to seminary, and, and i got to confess, when I was going to seminary, those were definitely, uh, how shall I say, my macaroni and cheese days. I mean, money was, you know, very scarce in my life. You know, I'd open my wallet and a moth would fly out. And, and in 1984, I was working as a part-time youth pastor, working full-time hours, but part-time pay. That's usually how it works. And uh, I was also working at a radio station, and I was going to school, and I was still barely making ends meet. And then I heard that for the 1984 Summer Olympics, they were looking for security guards. Well, taking a look at me, you know, someone built like I am, I mean, that would throw terror into the heart of anybody that would want to mess up the Olympic Games. So I signed up, and that tells you how desperate they were. They took me. So (laughs) there I was, and and I got assigned to the graveyard shift. It was the only time that I could work it into my schedule at the water polo venue at Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. And let me tell you something, working the graveyard shift was two things, two words, boring. <laughs> it was incredibly mind-numbing work, and nothing ever happened, you know? I mean, there we were standing around in our uniforms with our berets and our walkie-talkies and all of our training, and nothing ever happened. I mean, one night a guy jumped the fence and tried to hacksaw down a metal flagpole to get an Olympic souvenir. That was the extent of our thrills there. So being a security guard at the Olympics, the number one challenge I would face every night was staying awake. You you know how it works, you who've worked the grave shift? About four in the morning, your body is going, this is wrong. This is twisted. You should not be doing this. Everybody else is sleeping. Follow their lead. And whatever you do... This also works in church, by the way. This is a little bonus extra here. But... Whatever you do in those circumstances, you know when your eyes start to feel real heavy and start to flutter a little bit? Do not pay attention to that little voice inside of you that says, just close them for one second. You'll feel so much better. Just one second. 
You know what happens, especially when you're in church. You close your eyes for one second, and I believe God has hotwired our system in such a way that when you close your eyes for just that one second, you immediately dream that you've stepped off a curb. And then, oh, you go like that. And everybody else in your row looks at you and goes, ah, they stepped off the curb. <laughs> and then your eyes start fluttering, right? Well, the only thing that kept me going during my time in the graveyard shift, you know, I've, I've messed around with backyard amateur astronomy for a number of years. And the one thing I knew about astronomy was that Venus is the morning star. And it was coming up. It's either the morning star or the evening star. During that time, it was the morning star. It's the brightest object that you'll see in the sky. It's not a star. It's really a planet. But the wonderful thing about Venus to me during that time is when Venus came up, when you could see Venus rising, you knew sunrise wasn't that far off. It gave you a sense of hope. You see, if you saw that star coming up, you knew you were getting out soon. You know, I really believe that's why Jesus refers to himself as the bright and morning star. We don't see the kingdom of God coming in righteousness in our day. I kind of crack up at some of these people that I hear on Christian radio or see on TV. It says, well, you know, the kingdom of God has really come. We're in the millennium right now. I'm like, you're kidding. This is it? No. Jesus has come. His first coming was to suffer and die on the cross for our sins and be resurrected to provide salvation. But He is coming again to bring in that kingdom of righteousness. Our hope that He will come, that His righteous kingdom will be established, is based upon the fact that He was faithful to come the first time. He fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy concerning the suffering servant at His first coming. We can know in our hearts He will also fulfill every promise we find of His second coming as well. The kingdom of God in all of its righteousness is coming and coming soon. We can see that bright and morning star. And when we begin to to fall in love with Jesus, we begin to be consumed with just how wonderful He is. Oh, it's too good a thing to keep to ourselves. Look at verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Notice this invitation that is given here. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Now, there are commentators who believe that the Spirit and the Bride are addressing Jesus, saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But notice the last part of verse 17. Notice this line, whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Who are being bidden to come? Those who are thirsty. Those who who are lacking the love of God in their lives, those who know deep down inside there must be something more to life than news, weather, and sports and living for the weekend, those who deep down inside realize that we were made for more than just living three score and ten years in this world and kicking the bucket, those who hunger and thirst for God are told to come to Him. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. You want to know what a truly Spirit-filled church is known by? It's not necessarily by inspired worship or uplifting teaching, although those things are very important. A true church that is in harmony with the work of God's Spirit is a church that is making a difference in this world. It is a church that is exhorting its people to get out of the salt shaker and into the world where that salt and that light are absolutely necessary. Hey, it's great to be a lifeguard, 
But what point is it if all you did was hang around with other lifeguards and talked about, well, nobody's going to drown in this room? You need to be out there where people need to be rescued. That's why the Spirit and the Bride say, come. People need to come to Jesus Christ. You know, one of the most important messages I think I ever heard along this line. A fellow spoke in seminary when I was there, and he said this, and I never forgot it. He said, you know, there is only one thing better that you and I can do here on earth than we can do in heaven. And it's not worship. I hate to tell you, as wonderful as the worship is here, and we've really been blessed by it this weekend, heavenly worship will have this worship beat all to pieces. It's not even fellowship. Can you imagine what heavenly fellowship is going to be like? When there's no longer sin keeping me from really knowing you and you from really knowing me, when the love of Christ flows unimpeded, uninhibited through our lives, that's going to be tremendous. So if we're not still here to fellowship or to worship, why do you suppose God still has us here? It's to reach the lost. Because there are no lost people in heaven. That's why we're here. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. That should be our number one priority, getting that message out. As we see this world starting to go down, let's not get involved with foolish disputes with one another and bickerings among Christians with one another. It's like arguing over the arrangement of the deck chairs on the Titanic. The ship's going down. We need to get people to the lifeboats, don't we? God's perspective for us is to have that clarity of purpose. We need to be sharing the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. But we also need to be on guard against spiritual danger in these last days. Look at verse 18. John writing there says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy... God shall take away His part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Notice there are two distinct spiritual dangers we need to be well aware of in the last days. First is the danger of addition to God's truth. Now, that is a real warning to us in our day because there are all kinds of people and groups out there who in essence are saying that the Word of God is not sufficient. We need something more. Sometimes they're not even subtle about it. Uh, every year around Christmas time, maybe you've seen the TV ad before. Very slickly produced, really nice music comes up in the background. A very professional sounding announcer's voice comes up and says, You've heard of his miraculous birth, of his uncomparable life, and his glorious resurrection. And then comes the hook. But what if there was more? And suddenly you see on your screen a copy of the Book of Mormon. And notice something. Underneath the words, the Book of Mormon, are these words, another testament of Jesus Christ. They're offering us more, or so they say. You know what the Bible has to say about those who offer to us more than what the Word of God, the Old and New Testaments have to say? Is all about. Turn with me in your Bible, the book of Galatians, chapter 1, to see what a serious issue this is. Galatians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 6, the Apostle Paul writing there said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you've received, let him be accursed. Serious stuff? You better believe it. Because anyone who comes to you and says, we've got more than Jesus, is really offering you less. Anyone who comes to you and says, we've got Jesus plus our book, Jesus plus our rituals, Jesus plus our church membership, they're not offering you Jesus plus. They're offering you Jesus minus. They're taking away. And God says, don't mess with that. Now, we in a church like this, a Bible teaching church, where, you know, when I say turn in your Bible, I hear this glorious sound. Oh, the, the nicest sound that, that any pastor ever hears, the, the sound of pages fluttering. It's wonderful to see how in love with God's Word you all are out here. But, you know, we can be a little smug. We can say, well, you know, I, I, I'm not in danger of that. I'm not in danger of joining a cult anytime soon. I'm hearing this right on church. This is great. Well, yeah, that is great. But you're not necessarily immune to adding to God's Word. Have you ever been in a situation where someone came to you with a significant, serious problem and you just didn't know what to say? And, you know, the idea of sharing God's Word with them, maybe it sounded a little hollow to you. And, and so, you know, you relied maybe on something you saw on Oprah's show or, or something you read in a magazine or something that, you know, you were exposed to in an in a introductory psych class you had in college. We need to be very careful about that. Now, that point was driven home to me when I was on staff at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa in California. That place, I'll tell you, that place was an education in and of itself. I had gone through three years of seminary, got my Master of Divinity degree, and let me tell you, three years getting my MDiv, three years at Costa Mesa, I think at Costa Mesa I unlearned everything I thought I knew about ministry that I learned in seminary. It was definitely front and center on the battle lines ministry. And you would get all kinds of people coming all day long with incredible problems. One day in particular, I'll never forget, this couple came back to my office and sat down, and they were devastated. They had lost their six-month-old son to sudden infant death syndrome. And they were so just overwhelmed with grief and this loss. And at that point, I wasn't married, and I didn't have any kids and so how in the world could I possibly relate to these people? And so feeling so inadequate, I, I fumbled for words and I read to them Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, our hope of everlasting life. I told them about how Jesus said, let the little children come to me and don't forbid them for such is the kingdom of God. But even sharing that, I still felt so inadequate. And there they were. They were still overcome by their grief. And they were very nice and we prayed and they're very gracious about it. But they left. And I'll tell you, I just felt wiped out. I walked out of my office onto the plaza area at Costa Mesa. And you know, I was just kind of trying to get my breath back. And standing out there sort of staring at the ground. When, when coming across the plaza was another man on staff, Pastor Romaine, Chuck Smith's right-hand man. Now, maybe you've heard Skip tell Pastor Romaine stories here before, but for those of you who have not, you need to understand, all you need to know about Pastor Romaine is this. He is a former Marine drill sergeant. <laughs> maybe the word former is, is not accurate here, because really there is no such thing as a former Marine drill sergeant. Once you are one, you are one. 
And Romain, you know, he had a heart of gold and he loved the Lord. But boy, he had a, uh, uh, let's get down to business kind of attitude. He saw me standing there looking clueless and he said, what's wrong with you? And I looked at him and I said, uh, oh, you know, I just had this couple in my office. They just lost their six-month-old son. He goes, they did? What'd you tell them? And I'm kind of getting the rabbit in the headlights look in my eyes. I said, well, I, I, I read to him from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I told him that passage in Matthew where Jesus said, let the little children come. And he goes, you read him the Bible? And I'm like, oh, man, I blew it. I, I mean, here it goes. I'm just going to get chewed out. I have 200 push-ups. I don't know what's coming now. And he looked at me and he said, good. If you ever come up with something better to share with people than God's Word, then share it. But till then, you stick to the Bible. Well, Pastor Romain went home to be with the Lord earlier this year, but his legacy lives on. I'll never forget those words. And we dare not forget those words. We have God's Word. God's Word is that which cuts through to the very heart and soul of man. God's Word is that which never returns void. God's Word is the bread of life that satisfies. What do we have that's better than that? Share it. Make sure you aren't adding to God's Word. But notice as well, there's another warning here. Verse 19, And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in the book. Now notice there's another danger, the danger of subtraction here. Now, by subtraction, don't get this thought in your mind of some mad monk in a monastery with a big eraser erasing out whole sections of your Bible. We have such vast manuscript evidence to support what the original manuscripts had to say. We know that that is not the case in our day. Don't let someone try to pull the wool over your eyes. But I think in our day and age, in these last times, the real danger of subtraction comes not from those who try to delete God's Word, but by those who try to undermine our confidence in God's Word. Well, have you ever spent any time watching some of those programs on the Discovery Channel or PBS on the Bible? I'll tell you, the, the one overwhelming theme you hear over and over and over again is this. You know, you have the guy with a tweed jacket and the elbow patches with a pipe looking very erudite. Puff, puff, puff. Well, you know, we know today, puff, 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 that, you know, these things were clever myths and stories that helped the Christian community coalesce together. And, you know, they have no basis in fact, of course, but puff, puff, puff. It's a beautiful document. And... You know, and everybody goes, well, you know, this guy's a Ph.D. I guess he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Undermining our confidence in God's Word. You need to realize how silly that mentality is when it sees the light of day. A great illustration of this happened again when I was on staff at Costa Mesa. This was back during the original Operation Desert Storm. Uh, we were going into Iraq. And since Iraq contains ancient Babylon... Uh, this word got out and all kinds of people were very interested in what the Bible had to say concerning prophecies and Babylon. And is this the last days? Is this the battle of Armageddon? Well, during that time, Pastor Chuck Smith and Greg Laurie were invited to be on KFI Radio in Los Angeles, a secular radio program, a talk show, to discuss these prophecies. Joining Greg and Chuck was the head of religious studies from the University of Southern California. 
Well, they began to discuss some of the prophecies in Isaiah that pertained to Babylon and what they had to say concerning the last days. And this fellow from USC just interrupted and said, well, you know, this is really ridiculous because these things aren't prophecies at all. We know that there wasn't one Isaiah now. We know there are three Isaiahs that wrote this. And he wrote it over such a long period of time. Some things that appeared to be prophecies in this are really not prophecies because really, you know, there's these three Isaiahs and, and everybody knows that now. And, And Chuck Smith responded by saying, well, I I beg to differ with you on that. No less an authority than Jesus Christ himself quoted from all three sections of the book of Isaiah that you are referring to and ascribed them to one author, the prophet Isaiah. Well, the fellow from the University of Southern California replied, well, we know an awful lot more today about the Bible than they knew back in the time of Jesus. And there was this silence. And Pastor Chuck responded by saying, So what you're trying to tell me is you claim to know more about the Bible than Jesus Christ. Well, this professor, nobody's fool, was starting to see the corner he was being backed into. And he hemmed and he hawed and he tried to... And then finally he just gave up the fight and said, Well, yes, yes, I do. And Pastor Chuck said, I have nothing more to say to anyone who thinks they know more about the Bible than Jesus Christ. And he hung up and left poor Greg on the line with the guy. (laughs) But do you see the silliness of it all? How ridiculous this mentality is when it's shined in the light of day. Even basic logic refutes it. Don't let anyone undermine your confidence in God's Word. How do we know the Bible is the Word of God? This is a message all by itself. But we know the Bible is God's Word, first of all, because of its doctrinal consistency. Although written by over 40 different authors on three different continents over 1,500 years It agrees down to the crossing of the T's and the dotting of the I's and the most controversial subjects known to man. We know the Bible is God's Word also through archaeology. There has never been an archaeological discovery that has in any way disproved the Bible. Rather, archaeology in its true and purest form confirms the Bible. And finally, we have the witness of supernatural prophecy. God speaking beyond space and time to reveal things which have not yet happened as if they already had. Oh, the Bible is an anvil, one person said, that has worn out many skeptics' hammers. Don't let someone undermine your confidence in God's Word in these last days. Well, verses 20 and 21, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Here we see our final perspective that we need to have, a clarity of perspective in this world. Notice what John says here. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming quickly. Oh, isn't that a word that has caused some controversy? Some skeptics have said, see, Jesus said he was coming quickly. Well, I don't know how you define quickly, but 2,000 years doesn't seem very quick to me. Surely these people who expected Jesus to come soon were mistaken, right? Well, wrong. The word quickly does not mean quick in the sense of a short duration of time. The word more accurately in the original language means suddenly or unexpectedly. In other words, when Jesus comes for his church, it's going to happen 
like a thief in the night. It's going to happen in a way that catches people off guard. No one is going to be able to anticipate it. And catch this, there is no prophecy of Scripture that still needs to be fulfilled before Jesus could come back for us. It could happen at any moment. So if anyone comes here, and this is a mistake that I see uh, even very sincere Christians making from time to time. If anyone comes to you and says, well, we have figured out the day of the Lord's return for His church. We have figured out whether Adam had a navel or not and divided that by the number of verses in the Psalms and the hypotenuse of Jeremiah squared. And we've come up with this date. And people buy into it. How many of you remember 88 reasons why Jesus must return in 1988? Remember that? Did did they come up with 99 reasons why He must come in 99? I don't know. But every time someone starts to name dates and come up with their system, they always end up with egg on their face. Why? Well, here's the answer. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36, Jesus said, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, here is a real heavy and profound truth, and I know some of you who are not theologically trained might have a hard time grasping this, but I ask you to try to follow me here because it's very important for you to understand this. In the Greek, Greek scholars agree through intensive study that the word no one means, catch this, no one. (laughs) I don't care how elaborate your system is. I don't care if some angel came to you and said, here it is, you know, you got it now. No, it says no one. You know what the message of the Bible is? Don't sit around and try to, to calculate the Lord's return. Be ready for the Lord's return because it could happen at any time. Hey, some people will say, well, you know, I mean, what if I spend my whole life anticipating the Lord's return? What if I'm standing for God's Word and and sharing His truth and seeking the return of Jesus Christ and and the Lord doesn't come back in my lifetime? Well, gee, what a tragedy that would be. You know what you'll get at the end of that? You'll be in the presence of God anyway, and the Lord will be looking at you saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, we start playing fast and loose with these things and say, well, you know, I think I'll get right a little bit later. You know, when I have time to really think about this, like when I'm in the old folks' home, between the commercial break, between Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy, that's when I'll get right. Oh, we're playing with disaster. How do you know you're going to make it to the old folks' home? How do you know the Lord couldn't interrupt your life today? Before you even get home today, the rapture could happen. Even if the rapture doesn't happen, the length of our lives is as a morning fog, the Scripture says. First you see it, then it's gone. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to get right. Today is the day, believer in Christ, to live as if Jesus could come before you hit your bed tonight. If you do that, you will never go astray. You know, Chuck Swindoll points out a very interesting thing in one of his commentaries on the book of Revelation. He speaks of the Chinese word for crisis. The Chinese word for crisis is made up of two different characters in the Chinese language. One that means danger. The other means opportunity. Yeah, we live in crazy times, dangerous times for sure. But we live in times of great opportunity. Great opportunity to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out. Great opportunity to grow strong in our faith and our confidence in God's Word. Great opportunity to have that faith strengthened as we see these prophecies come to pass before our eyes. 
Oh, may the Lord bless you and give you that focus on our Lord Jesus Christ. For as you look for Him, you will never be disappointed. Shall we pray? Father, we thank You that You give us such love and such grace. We thank You, Lord, that You have a plan for our lives, for all human lives, for even the life of this world. And Lord, in a world where so many are asking, what is this world coming to? We know the answer. It's coming to an end. But we thank You, Lord, that You've shown us the end. And it is the end when You will rule and reign in righteousness, when our Lord Jesus Christ will take His throne and be acknowledged as King of kings and Lord of lords. I pray this morning for those who may be here who don't know You as their Lord and Savior, who've never made that conscious decision to receive You as Savior and Lord, that they would not leave here today without coming forward and talking to one of the pastors after the the church service about what it means to receive You as their Lord and Savior. That even right now in their hearts, they would call on You and say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need Your forgiveness. Come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me the person You want me to be. I pray as well, Lord, for those who have already made that decision. Oh, Lord, inflame our hearts with a vision that You could come at any time. As this world becomes crazier and crazier, may we more and more found our lives upon the rock that will never fail us of Your unfailing promise, of Your unfailing love. Let that love overflow our lives and touch this community and this world for Your glory. In Jesus' name.